I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast. That is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc. Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now, I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm, and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend Foundations, where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology, knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders in shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. 
and you can find even more information on newcalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show artist and street photographer Suzanne Stein. Now, as you will hear in this conversation, there is a spectrum of art when it comes to this field. However, as she discusses, some is very family-friendly, and then the other side of the spectrum is truly portraying the desperation in some of our streets. And Suzanne has definitely become a beacon of light in that area. So we discuss a host of topics, from her own journey into the arts and ultimately photography, her interactions with the homeless community, the opioid epidemic, the horrors of trank addiction, censorship, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Suzanne Stein. Enjoy. Well, Suzanne, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking some time. I know you've got a lot going in your house at the moment, people toing and froing. So I want to thank you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast this afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for putting up with the difficulty with me today. No problem at all. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So as we, we kind of had a, a couple of chats prior, so as I asked you the first time, I would love to start at the very beginning. You've got a very interesting journey, not only with photography, but obviously the 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 people that you found yourself around and the lens that you have on some of the the issues that some of our brothers and sisters in our communities are struggling with. But I would love to start at the beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. I um, was born in Kalkaska, Michigan, but I was, uh, and that's like Northern Michigan. So it's a lot of snow and, but I didn't, I wasn't raised there. I was raised, um, my family, well, my dad was in the, was, um, he was in the air force. So then we went to Germany and we were in Germany when I was a baby for a long time. Um, and then we came back to Philadelphia, which is, uh, where my father's from. My mother was from Michigan. That's why my dad was stationed up there. So um, I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs and um, I grew up with a, you know, I, I had a brother. Um, he was four years younger than me and I grew up in the seventies and, um, you know, I had a weird childhood because my family, my dad and mom got divorced when I was seven. And at the time that this happened, it, it was, um, there were very rigid ideas about what families were. A family was a mom, a dad, and kids. You know, there wasn't like some gay couple with kids. There wasn't like a divorce. There wasn't like a black and a white person married. 
there was, you know, a mom and a dad and, you know, um, we grew up in a very, you know, suburban mentality. So when that happened, it really set me apart, um, being, having that divorce. Plus, um, I'm half Jewish. And as a kid, I really felt that, that we were different. Um, there was, I, well, considering what's happening now, I've grown up with a lot of weird kind of, um, a little anti-Semitism when I was little, some stuff happening to us. Um, but I had a kind of okay childhood with my dad. He, he took good care of us, but we were kind of like these sloppy, dirty kids because my dad didn't know how to clean. And my mother, um, when she left, she kind of went through a second childhood. And my mother has a history of alcohol and drug abuse. Like my mom, for whatever reason, she was able to keep it together and always have a job, like a menial job, like in cafeterias or as a janitor. So she always worked, but she was basically a skid row drunk. She really was. Um, and she um, did a lot of drugs. So when I was a kid, if she lived in a trailer, it's kind of like a caricature a little bit. Um, I hate to say it, but, you know, she... Um, was kind of um, a stereotype of a, you know, I don't want to say it, but um, a low income kind of drunken white female. I hate to put it that way, but it was pretty bad. And like, she'd have all these little boxes laying around, you know, like you keep jewelry in or you keep keepsakes in like little keepsake boxes from, you know, different places enamel boxes. And when I was a kid, I'd like to open them up and I'd always find drugs. Like I'd be thinking I'd be finding jewelry or something special or interesting. And it was drugs like powders and pills and all kinds of stuff. So I grew up with a, a, a parent, one parent that was completely grossly irresponsible and was um, hooking up with criminals. It was really scary, like bank robbers. Like it was really scary. And my dad would have to leave us with her because uh, his job required him to be on the road. And it was just kind of a weird deal with my mom. Um, so I had kind of an odd situation on one hand in my childhood, but on the other hand, I had a great childhood with my dad who really tried hard to make up for all the deficits of my mom. With the lens that you have now and working with a lot of people who are struggling with addiction, when you look back, are there any, do you have any idea of where her trauma came from that, that sent her into her own version of addiction? I don't think everybody who's addicted had trauma. I think that some people who have addiction like being high and they, they like the feeling of it. And there are people, you know, who have had trauma and who are reacting to trauma. I've photographed many of them. And then there are other people who are narcissists and who like being high and who get high. And they then abandon their family and their responsibilities. Not every single person who's struggling with addiction is also suffering from trauma. Now, my mom had a bumpy childhood in spots with her father, but my mom was always um, narcissistic and a little antisocial, you know? So I think some people who get high a lot are they're getting high a lot and they're, they're doing what they want to do. It's not a reaction 
to a trauma necessarily. Now you're bouncing from from house to house. You know, obviously there's some turmoil in some of the homes. What were you playing and doing? What what were your positive outlets as a child? I used to draw. I was a really good artist. I was a very good writer. I used to like to draw and write. I loved. Um, I would get interests, very strong interests. It could be in horses or dogs or Native Americans, uh, it, astronomy. Um, evolution. I had all kinds of interests. I was really good in school. Um, you know, so I, I found a lot to be interested in, in the world. And I read a great deal. I mean, from a very young age, like the third grade, I read Helter Skelter, the whole book. I read, um, always adult books from the age of eight. So I had a really active mental kind of life and I had a lot of, um, things that I was really, really fascinated by. So I was able to um, kind of immerse myself in that stuff. And, um, you know, my mother was somewhat abusive as well. So those days were really hard to spend with her. Um, but I found that I could, um, you know, bury my nose in a book, draw, you know, do the things that I had to do to kind of disconnect from that situation. So I could kind of stay afloat. And what about career aspirations? When you were in the school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? Um, I think, well, I was kind of fat. I wanted to be a ballerina when I was fat. Um, but I wanted to be a doctor, an astronomer. I wanted to be an anthropologist. Um, but what happened to me when I was 13, I began to experiment with drugs. And when I did that, my schoolwork just slid. I, I never really caught up. And I think that's when my childhood caught up to me when I was 13. So up until 13, I was an amazing student. And then at 13, I started doing a lot of drugs and I just almost failed the eighth grade and had to go to summer school. And I became like, instead of being at the top of my class, I was in the bottom third. And I never really came out of that. Because I think that's when all the trauma of my own childhood, because there was a lot of trauma with my mother, it was bad. There was a lot of weird men, a lot of really bad stuff, um, a suicide and all kinds of crazy stuff. That's when the trauma hit me. And I just really started to um, flounder in high school. I had a really tough high school uh, experience. And what were the drugs that you were using back then? Um, when I was a kid, it started out with marijuana and then it was hash and then it was speed and we would use, um, barbiturates, um, some hallucinogens, but that wasn't my thing. It was mostly, um, marijuana hash and a lot of speed. And, um, I finally, I did it for about a year and a half. And then I realized I couldn't think straight anymore. Like my mind was gone. I couldn't remember things. I was, I used to play guitar. Like I said, I had a lot of interests and I began to recognize that my memory, which used to be photographic was gone. Like I literally was, so I, I stopped, I stopped doing drugs and I lost all those friends that I had that were druggy friends and they were very important to me. Um, and I lost every one of them and it came as a real shock. 
um, at the time I was only 14. So I didn't really understand the dynamics of why people are friends, why they gravitate towards each other. And that if one person makes a positive change that can reflect poorly on everybody else and they just ostracize me. So that also set me into a total tailspin and it was just a lot of trauma. Um, and at that time, I mean, we're going back into the eighties. So now anything goes, you can be, uh, he, she, they, you can be whatever now, and you're supposed to be accepted. I don't, I don't think that you're always accepted in every high school in the United States, but in my high school in the middle of a cornfield in Pennsylvania, it was like, you had to be, it was very rigidly defined, um, social stratifications. And so when I left the the smart kids, the smart kids were freaked out. And then I was a druggie for a while. And then I left that and nobody would touch me. Like I just didn't fit anymore. And I lacked the social skills to, to know because of all the stuff I'd been through generally, I didn't really understand how to save myself. Cause I wasn't really coming from a level place. If I'd been more, um, had better parental intervention, like my dad was great, but he didn't intervene at all. He was not a strong figure as far as um, discipline. So I was really on my own, completely on my own. And I just couldn't, I didn't know how to handle any of this. And I just didn't make good decisions. And I had no, um, you know, it's weird as I'm talking about this, I'm understanding it better. But um, I really didn't have a solid footing. And I didn't know how to resurrect myself. And so with all the trauma, as I mentioned, I just wound up really screwing up in high school and couldn't get into college. I couldn't get, I wound up getting accepted into an Ivy league school here in Philadelphia at university of Pennsylvania, but it wasn't till I was an adult, you know, I'd never thought of it that way that if someone is in a group that is dragging them down, for example, and they're not there dragging them down, but you know they're all kind of falling simultaneously. A better way of putting it, yeah. That when one of them rises up, they become ostracized, and it's, it kind of reflects a little bit. When I was younger, I had a group of lads, and I got into the summer camp exchange program. So I would go to America for three months, work on a summer oh. camp, counseling kids, and then come back. And that broke the tribe. Like each time, I think it was only two or three, and then I basically felt like I wasn't part of it and it was almost because I was off on these adventures yeah they, they wanted to kind of pull me down again and there's no no you know negative towards them but that tribal dynamic I was the oddball I was off doing something and so you know you get these people that want to want to leave this circle that they're in that maybe isn't uh you know serving them correctly but we all need tribalism we all need to belong so that's a huge barrier of leaving an unhealthy environment is the fact that you, you might find yourself alone, which in itself can be detrimental. Yeah. It, it, I think also when you um, abandon poor, like bad habits, it's a judgment on those that are still in, in it, even though they're kids, you're in their minds, you're saying that you're better, that you've rejected something because it's not good enough for you. And that was definitely the feeling that I gave them by not just not wanting to do drugs anymore. I thought we could all hang around. I just didn't do drugs. And we were also victims of pedophilia, pedophiles as well as young girls. Like 
this all started when I was about 12, went till I was about 14. And there were all kinds of adult males that were all over us. And some of my friends had relationships with guys in their thirties when they were 12 and 13. We were a group of kids that were latchkey kids. That was the term. We were single parent family kids. A lot of them were mothers raising their kids. In my case, it was my dad. And they just had their hands full and they didn't know what the hell was going on. We were doing drugs. We were hitchhiking. We were sleeping in abandoned houses. We were sneaking out at night. We were breaking and entering into homes, in the storerooms. We were vandalizing. I left all that out. I was doing a lot of bad things. I was really, really bad. Okay. And I got brought home by the police twice. And, um, you know, after I stopped doing drugs, I, I, I had always, you know, looked at these adults like they were gross. You know, I, I always had, they didn't like, they never really liked me. These adults, they were also criminals selling drugs. It was really bad, really like, um, the lowest class of people, um, in our community. And we were really vulnerable because we were single parent kids and, you know, we were growing up in a time when there was no social media, there wasn't as much information out there for parents to access. There was no way to look stuff up. You had to go to a bookstore or have a set of encyclopedias. Parents didn't know what drugs we were doing. There was no like news popping up on your Google feed when you wake up in the morning to tell you what's going on with kids in school. Like there was nothing like that. So we were like wild animals, literally wild, running wild. And um, when I walked away from the situation, um, some of my friends were really being exploited and it, and I'm sure that it, they never really recovered from some of it, you know? And I think when you walk away from that kind of situation, they just, um, pass judgment on me, they kind of reverse it and make it seem like you're the loser. And that kind of stayed with me. And I, I couldn't, you can't really transition back into another friend group. It's hard now for kids, I'm sure. I, I know that there's tremendous amount of bullying. My, my son went through it in high school in New York. But back when I was growing up, um, it was, the impression was very lasting of not really fitting in because the the habits, the social habits were different than they are now. The level of acceptance was really a lot lower. I always found it so strange being an English schoolboy watching American films, you know, with the jocks and the goths and the geeks and, yeah. you know, putting the geeks in the lockers because you just didn't see that here. And, you know, my wife, my wife said she didn't see the kind of, you know, the, the caricatures of those groups so much in America. But, yeah, it was it was very clicky. And in the English schools, at least when I grew up, there was none of that. You know, there was the kids that were good at sports, maybe, you know, but everyone kind of somewhat got on. And the kids didn't like each other, of course, but there was no there was no kind of cliques or cult or uh, tribes within school. We were all, you know, it was your history class or your, you know, main room or whatever it was. But we were just put together of all shapes and sizes colors and creeds so it was kind of weird to to look at that and you know and i ask people to this day like you know was your high school experience like that or was it just you know cartoon but you know some people had great organic healthy high school experiences and some lived those movies yeah i think that in america because um 
we have a history of like, well, I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world as far as growing up, but we had a history of like racism and stuff. And the racism here goes in all directions. It isn't just in one direction, you know, and the distrust and, and just this really absurd, like clannishness, you know, um, anything that's different, you know, there was like in my high school, there was a couple of Korean kids, a couple of Jewish kids, a couple of black kids, a couple of Indian kids, and, and the rest of them were white. And, you know, because I'm white, I'm half Jewish and the name was very different. So I, I caught a lot of anti-Semitic commentary from other kids, but the fact is that I'm white and I have blue eyes. So that didn't, you know, set me apart as much as some of the other kids, you know, but we were all this like weird, like group of like kids that were just from other parts, you know, or just, it was just a, honestly, it was an awful experience. My high school experience. I so wish I could have grown up in an urban environment where there would have been um, a lot more diversity. I hate that word, but I, I really needed to be in that kind of environment. Um, but I grew up in a really uh, stratified um very kind of, I don't know, do you know who Archie Bunker is? Yes, the I character? do. Yeah. It was very much, even though it was a suburban, um, suburban almost country location, the mentality was very much like that. And it was really damaging. So you, you pull away from this friend group. Talk to me about graduation and where you find yourself as far as in the workplace. Um, I graduated and I went to community college and then I kind of had a nervous breakdown. I think it was again, all that trauma. I don't know. I, I got really sick. I got, um, I think I probably had a, like a, a foodborne illness, a serious foodborne illness. And I couldn't leave the house for six weeks. I was really, 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 really sick. And it triggered like a nervous breakdown and all of this stuff with my mother and all this crazy stuff. And my mother was really crazy at that time. And um, that's when my life really changed. I, I had this nervous breakdown. And when I came out of it, I was a lot healthier. It was like I had to shed this high school thing. And then I got a job as a waitress. I was very shy, but I got this job as a waitress and I gained a lot of confidence. And then I, I left and I moved to New York City at the age of barely like 20, 21. And that's when I became very, very confident. And my whole life changed after I had that nervous breakdown. Um, so I became an actress in New York. I studied theater and I used to like to write a lot. I did my own monologues and I had kind of a New York kind of life for a while. And then I... Um, yeah, I don't know how far you want me to go into that, but I, I wasn't really, I hadn't really found my driving passion in life. I had interests and I had abilities. I was a great writer, always was probably better when I was younger than I am now. Um, now I, I think too much about what I'm writing, but I'm trying to get out of that habit and I'm trying to write more now, but um, I hadn't really found my passion. Like I, I, that sounds ridiculous, but I, I hadn't really, I didn't have a calling. Um, until I had a car accident 
and I became disabled when I was in my late 20s. And I had a serious back injury. And I was disabled for a few years, like really disabled. I was in a rehab hospital and I had, um, it was very, very bad situation. And it took me years to um, recover. And as I recovered, I discovered that I was an, a really good artist. I started to draw. And that was the first time I realized I had um, any worth, like that I had this real talent. I never felt, I think that if someone has a, an ability, like let's say you're a, you're a dancer or you're a, you're a gymnast or you're a runner, you have this natural ability. I, it's like this amazing sense of freedom and, and like joy and euphoria that you just, you just can do something that you're so good at. I'd never really had that feeling until I started drawing and I was really, really good at it. I had a really offbeat kind of, I, I, I had a lot of the same subjects that I have now, except I drew, but as good as I was, I, I wasn't able to really fully articulate um, my ability into an artistic statement and into like a, a body of work. And after a few years, I got pregnant and I had my son and um, I became the single parent of a kid on the autistic spectrum, which, which has been really very difficult. Um, and then I discovered photography and that's when I found myself was when I discovered photography. That's when I like really found myself so you you've done you know the art of acting which is funny you went to new york i went to london after drama school and and got stuck in this vicious circle of i had an agent tell me oh you know i, I really like i did the showcase i really like what you did but you wouldn't be in my area of the agency so let us know and it was william morris let us know when you get work and we'll send the right person over to come watch you and then it was just like, I couldn't get work because I didn't have an agent and I couldn't get an agent. Yeah, I needed work to get an agent. I needed an agent to get work. So I was stuck in this vicious circle. So um, I'm always, you know, impressed by anyone who enters New York, London and, and is successful because, I mean, I I basically wasn't. I, I couldn't get through that door. And it wasn't like I had real endurance or longevity. It wasn't really my calling. And I, I definitely was not a good actor. But, you know, a, a kind of niche actor. I was a very physical, you know, stuntman type role but um but yeah it, it, i don't think people realize you don't just graduate drama school move to london and then start working that you, there's there's a lot of barriers to entry and if you're stuck in that revolving door you might just be spinning the rest of your career i i found in new york um it took me a while to understand this but a lot of it depended on your look so i wound up getting these really great headshots by this photographer named Rafi. he was the guy for a while in the eighties. And I wasn't very, I'm not photogenic. Like I don't look good, right? I don't look, I look much better in person than I do on camera. I just do. So um, he even thought I was, he thought I'd be photogenic, but he was appalled. I was not photogenic. He managed. To <laughs> That's not what pictures. you want to hear. <laughs> it took him forever. He was like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll take beautiful pictures. And he just started sweating. He could not <laughs> get it looking right. Okay. So what I discovered was that it was about the way you looked. If you have the right headshot and you fit the look, then you could get in to see somebody. And 
I didn't have the look and I had no connections and I didn't understand. I I went, I went into it with the idea that it was like the movie fame, that if you were really good and really interesting and really into it, and I wrote most of my own monologues that you were going to get discovered. And what I really should have been doing was doing a lot of, um, performance space stuff and pushing my way into clubs and performing on stage. But I just wasn't that into it. It, it was something fun to do for a while, but I didn't have that kind of passion. And I didn't like that. It was so looks motivated. And I, I saw people being successful who had the right look or the right connections, or they were the kid, a, t- a child of somebody. And I just thought it was bullshit. You know, I was like, I'm, this is acting like, I'm not trying to knock it, but it being an actor or an actress is not the same as, you know, being a brain surgeon or being a writer or being somebody that you're you're copying something else. You're I don't find that um I don't really understand why um I mean it, it it's entertainment and it's great to be able to watch a movie, but I don't really put that stuff on a pedestal. And that's why I kind of walked away from it. Cause I thought I want to live a real life. I don't want to live somebody else's life and getting the best seat in a restaurant. I I'm very, um, we talked about this before celebrity culture. I, I really disdain, you know, so I, I don't care about it, but, um, as far as, you know, photography goes, it's kind of the same. It's about connections. It's about how your pictures look. It's about, how you are. It, there's so much BS in, in, in anything to do with the arts. It's very hard to just be really brilliantly talented and that's not enough to get you anywhere. It's really not. Um, it is if you fit in with someone's, um, if you're a part of, I think it's sort of the arts are run by little sororities and little fraternities and you have to sort of be accepted by one or, you have to fit in somehow and the people that are in it don't see it that way. Um, but it's a very entitled, um, cliquish kind of group. And it's also extremely competitive, very, very competitive. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think that's just the way the arts are for a lot of people. It's interesting because being in, in that space for a bit and then ultimately staying in it for a long time on the stunt side um you know you'd hear people say oh you know it's it's who you know you know this is the problem but then you go to the fire service and depending on the fire department you know i've watched and luckily i i I would test if there's one department and i was number one on the list and then a seemingly very fast process ground to a halt and then they had to redo the list and I was luckily still number one, but I found out after the fact that someone who was the son of the previous chief didn't make the list the first time, but magically made the list the second time. So even in my own profession, yep, there you who, go. You know, you know, I mean that that. So it's all the professions really, but uh, but yeah, I think especially that superficial judgment that is modeling, acting, you know, I mean, God, crippling sometimes because, like you said, you could walk in with the most amazing skill set. And someone look at you and go, no, you know, you just, you're being judged. And and I think it takes a very specific kind of personality to be able to shrug off those, especially, you know, they might end up being very successful, but that journey can be, can be brutal. 
It can be. But the other thing is too, I think having someone in your corner, a famous person or someone who's really influential in your field, that really helps. In photography, I'm not an expert on how people get ahead, but a lot of them seem to be interns for a paper or that's how they get into the paper. Um, not always the best people are getting the most jobs in photography. It's definitely an issue. Um, my work is really idiosyncratic, but I'm having a lot of trouble breaking into a certain um, sphere because of my style. Yeah. So I'm not part of that sorority and it is seems to be kind of a sorority. Um, and I can't kind of fight the current ideology in mass, you know, in corporate media right now is not to present really gritty, realistic pictures of life in America. So I get published in Europe, but it's very tough. I just had a conversation with someone at Reuters, one of the head people at Reuters, and I don't think she liked my work. She was very nice. Uh, we had a meeting and I got no, I mean, I am relatively used to people saying to me that they really like my work or it's this or it's that. They usually have something good to say. They may not like all of it, but this woman had nothing good to say. She does want to see more of it when, as I do it to send it to her, but she didn't like my work. And she explained, I don't think she did. She explained to me that in the United States, it's very hard to sell work. That's very realistic, even though it's very powerful. I think she thought my work was powerful. And that I was very good at creating a narrative and creating empathy, but I didn't wasn't sure that she liked it. But she said that she can't sell in this marketplace work that's rough or gritty because they sanitize the news. That was her words. I used that word, but she used it. And um, I've been in contact, close contact with some editors who are just, they just can't tolerate realism like I do in this country. But these are editors that publish extremely graphic images of Ukraine and dead people, Ukrainian dead people, dead people in body bags, dead hands, dead eyes peeking out of body bags, um, dead families in the middle of the street, really a lot of death, a lot of graphic death. But that situation happened a far away. And it was a political situation that our country wanted the population to be behind. They wanted us to see those pictures because they wanted us to support that war. But when you're talking about pictures of a population in this country, whether it's drug addiction or poverty struck populations in North Philadelphia, these editors do not want to publish it because in their words, they have to be careful about how bodies are shown and how certain populations are shown. And this was said to me flat out because they don't want to make situations worse. But what's happening is, is they're hiding from the public what's really happening. You have editors who, in a way, their feet don't touch the ground. They they have a certain aesthetic. They have an education level. They may not have ever been through anything in their lives that was really problematic. And they are deciding what you see and what you hear and what stories you get, what images you see. There are people in the United States that have no idea that 
North Philadelphia or parts of New York City look the way they do because you won't see it in the New York Times. You won't see it in the Philadelphia Inquirer. You won't see it in any of these papers. The San Francisco Chronicle does have some realistic images of the drug issue. They're supporting that. But, you know, a lot of um, work that's really realistic, social social realism like I do, is very tough to get seen in the United States because we are, I guess, maybe a bit too arrogant. We don't want to look at it. And we we say it's exploitative, but but we don't call it exploitation when it's starving people from Africa or dead people from Ukraine or um, what's happening in Gaza right now, I, I could talk endlessly about, um, you know, you're not really seeing images in corporate media of what it really looks like in Gaza. You're seeing images of what it really looks like in Gaza on social media. People are turning, There's there was just a real study released. I don't know who did it, but it was a real study about how, and I've been saying this, I'm writing a blog post about it. Um, people are turning to social media like Telegram and Instagram and TikTok to get news because they really wanna see what's going on. People want to see what's really happening. So they're turning to these platforms and they think they're seeing what's really happening, but they're really not getting the whole story because a lot of these people that they're getting their information from aren't necessarily real journalists. They're not really approaching it from a journalistic set of principles and protocols. So they're getting what they think is news, but it isn't always. And they're turning away from corporate media. Well, adding to, to that perspective of allowing images from foreign countries to come in, but not our own, that really reminds me of a lot of the conversations I've had on human trafficking with some of the experts. And that film came out uh, a few months ago and everyone was like, oh my God, it's the most amazing thing. But it was, firstly, I've, and I've heard since there's a, <laughs> it may not be as pure as the driven snow as people originally thought behind it, but also... You know, it was kind of like this one man's heroism kind of story where the real danger in the world of human trafficking is our own children on these these streets, you know, and the predators that are preying upon them to get them into prostitution and some of the other things through their own devices. Like this isn't, you know, South America. This is an American problem. And again, it's not even about doom and gloom like most of our neighborhoods are very safe most of our you know fellow community members are great people but if if all we do is point over the fence and say oh my god it's terrible over there and ignore what's happening here then firstly people are suffering needlessly because we're not paying attention but secondly we're sticking our head in the sand and that's only going to get worse so it's important that i think it's it's powerful that we see these Instagram videos and I do, I follow, you know, a lot of, a lot of different groups around the world and, you know, it's very graphic, but that's what's happening. This is the horror of war. This is the horror of famine, whatever, but we also need the same, same lens to be on our homelessness, on the opioid epidemic, on the obesity crisis, on, you know, the gang issues, you know, all these things. If we're going to be raw overseas, I agree a hundred percent. We need to, we need to have the same raw perspective on we our don't. own streets. So it moves us. We don't. And you have to understand the whole woke mentality, which I'm very against. I'm not against equality. This has nothing to do with equality. I'm against cancel culture and this wokeism thing, because what's happening is there's there are people who subscribe to that. And those people are in charge of visual 
visuals uh, on newspapers. They're terrified of getting blowback. They're afraid of getting blowback. They also don't want to show certain communities in a way that will make them, they're afraid that they'll be looked down on because maybe, you know, I have my thoughts about this, but what they're really doing is they're hiding whole communities of people, vibrant communities of people and not, it's like they don't exist. You cannot see images of certain neighborhoods the way they really look in corporate media at all. They don't show it at all. And one editor said to me that they have to be very careful how they show certain bodies because they don't want to make problems worse. But what they're really doing is they're saying that those people aren't good enough. They're actually saying that they're, they need to be hidden. Do you know what I'm kind of saying? I'm saying that I feel that um, I've said this many times, it's a mosaic. And all of the colors and all of the shapes, everything needs to be included. And we're living in a society now where we have elitist people who are making decisions about everything you see and hear and read. And a lot of them are afraid of blowback. Harm reduction will eviscerate the Philadelphia Inquirer if they run my pictures. They will not run my pictures because they're terrified. That's the truth. And I have had a couple of meetings there and they are, they don't want to show what it really looks like. So as a result, you have a, a tepid photography program at this paper and you have people that could have won Pulitzer Prizes for journalism in Kensington who have literally just not done anything in all the years that Kensington's been sitting there literally as a crow flies a mile and a half away from the main office of this newspaper, they won't touch it. And I have many, many images that are um, much easier on the eyes than some of my harshest ones. But, you know, we're living in a place now where I, I can't really figure out what it is that is driving these people, but anything coming from the U S it has to have a very, I call it photographic euphemism. It's sort of like mannerism, the style of art that's very um, pretentious and kind of light and even presenting heavy subjects like dignity photography. Like you send a photographer into a neighborhood and they do this posed portrait in front of a whatever, but they don't, they don't go into the projects. They don't go into the hallways. They don't show how people are living. They don't show anything about what it's really like to live in some of these areas. Because you have publications that don't want to show it. They don't want to. I'm not really sure. I, I can't really even speak freely about it. It's it's really sad. And it's really unfair ultimately to the people who are living in these areas because their stories aren't being effectively told. They're not being told at all. Because, you know, you have a group of people who are curating, strictly curating everything you see. I just did a thing on anti-Semitism and put it on Instagram and I'm kind of shadow banned on Instagram. So I've been for a while now it's worse because I interact with all these accounts from Gaza um, and they're all there. A lot of them are in trouble, but anyway, um, I did the story about this old Jewish guy, this rabbi who was attacked, almost attacked on the street. I photographed the whole thing. And that's a story that New York should be talking about.
you know, but you know, you can't get these rough real life stories out there. And people, I think people really want that. That's why they're turning to Instagram to these bloody videos of people coming out of these, you know, bombed out houses in, in Gaza. Cause people want to know what the hell's going on. They don't want to turn on CNN and have somebody say, you know, uh, you know, gloss over the truth. They want to know what's going on. And so I think our publications are going to have to catch up to that because people are, are starting to not take them seriously at all. And one of the problems that's happening with, especially with anti-Semitism right now is you have a lot of half truths out there and a lot of misinformation and people need to have accurately sourced and vetted information sources you know, along with those rough images. And they're not getting that. They're just getting rough video, but they're not getting much else. You know what I mean? Yeah, the context. Right. They're not getting the full context. And so um, it's kind of like little kids looking at pornography and just seeing the pictures. They have no idea that there's actually something, you know, wonderful that can come of, of, sex, you know, but they're just seeing pornography. And that's kind of what, in a way, what a lot of the visuals are that are coming out about this war. It's sort of like um, death pornography in a way. Um, and it's designed to get people to feel a certain way. Um, but it's not really, a lot of those people in Gaza, you know, aren't really telling real stories about people following them around what are their experiences every day it's just a lot of um the goriest parts of death to get people to look do you know what i mean yeah absolutely well you talked about um starting off drawing well acting then drawing and then you said you found photography walk me through how you found photography and then let's go to to how you got to kensington and started taking pictures that you're you're now known for so I found photography on a trip to Europe. Uh, we were really poor and we basically still are pretty poor. And I saved for a trip to Europe when my son was 11 and we went for six weeks and I started taking iPhone pictures in Bruges, Belgium, and then in Venice and then in Perugia. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I was good at it, these iPhone pictures. And I found myself chasing uh, Roman, Romany people, you know, um, they call them gypsies, but you're not supposed to. Um, the very interesting populations in Italy. And I was just chasing them around with my iPhone. And I remember Googling it and finding street photography. And then it all clicked with all these photography books my dad had. We always had a lot of books. We had thousands of books. I told you I read a lot. So... I, I had been kind of exposed to a, a lot of old photography as a child. And it, it, I guess it was in the back of my mind, like buried. And when I discovered all this, it was like turning a corner and it was like a blinding light. It was like literally like a near death experience of the, the light and God. And like, it was really like finding photography was like that. My life was one way before that trip. And when I came back, I bought a camera and, I just started learning to use a camera. Um, I had a Fujifilm X-T1 
And I found Skid Row. I'm kind of synopsizing. I found downtown Los Angeles and beach culture in, in California. And I was doing kind of these lighthearted street pictures. And I, I was really good at it. Like I had a lot of bad pictures. I had a lot of awful pictures, like literally just people milling around, like just nothing. But then I'd have a real gem. Like I had an eye, but I just needed to learn how to distill it and how to, um, you know, how to... Um, use the camera and use light and all this stuff. And when I first started taking pictures, I could make a great composition. It was more of a social composition. I was very good at telling a story in the picture, but I didn't really know how to use light or F-stop. I wasn't really taking pictures that were photographically, you know, expert or anything. I got, as I um, progressed, I, I, I started doing a lot more of that. Um, really, really good photography, like technically. I don't do as much of that in Kensington. Um, I, it's more my compositional and narrative skills that come into play um, and some creativity, but not as much as I can manage in New York being creative here. You, it's just not really appropriate with Kensington. Um, but I started photographing in Skid Row and doing these kind of character sketches with people. Skid Row's changed a lot. LA's changed a lot. Um, if you go on my website and look at my Los Angeles street photography, it's black and white. And then my Skid Row pictures, there's a lot of great characters and great moments that aren't really there anymore because gentrification. I mean, photography is like a fashion, like you're photographing a time. It's like a trend, a fashion, you know, like bell bottoms in the seventies. So when I photographed downtown LA, that was the way it was at the time I photographed it, but it's not like that anymore. So that's why street photography is so important because it chronicles times and it preserves characters and places and people and ideas and the zeitgeist of, uh, of the time. So I wound up losing my apartment in California because I couldn't pay for it. So we moved to Europe to save money. We went to Turkey and France, me and my son. And when we got back on our feet, um, we came to New York City and I needed to get some services for my son who was really struggling with um, some issues. And um, I think that I became a really good photographer in New York. That's when I really began to learn how to do pictures because I didn't find the content in New York that I had in LA. There wasn't Skid Row and downtown LA and these wonderful characters. In New York, I had to work harder to get it interesting to me. Um, I did multiple exposures, in-camera multiple exposures. I, I met certain people and I did some photo essays and long-term series of images with certain people. And I really developed as a photographer. And I think my best photography is in New York. Um, a lot of people still love that Skid Row in LA stuff, but a lot of people that know of me now don't even know I did anything in LA, you know? So, um, I came to Kensington. I'd been in New York for a long time and it was getting old, you know, being in New York and I was really tired of being in the city and I was tired of the grind and I photographed New York so extensively that I was just done. And also, um, I had COVID and it changed me. Like I wasn't really feeling well. I had long COVID and 
Um, I just had been wanting to photograph Kensington for a while. And I saw some videos of Kensington and I was like, you know, my God, like it's possible to do some serious art here that will also tell a story that needs to be told effectively because it's never been told effectively. There was like one other photographer that went in there a few years ago and did some really great portraits and got a lot of attention for it, but he didn't do street photography and he didn't show what the place looked like. He did portraits, which were good, but I wanted to do something that hadn't been done before. I wanted to make a portrait of a neighborhood. And I visited Kensington a bunch of times and I, I just had to do it. Like it was a calling and I had to relocate. I had to leave New York. I had to buy a car, a crappy car. And I basically just left my life behind to do this thing in Kensington and to do Kensington. You have to be a raw social realist. Either that, or you're going to come here and you're going to ask to do a nice portrait and get a story and make a recording of the person's story and take their picture. And that's bullshit. So I've gotten a lot of blowback for the work in Kensington from harm reduction, from communist groups, from I'm an exploiter. I'm in a, I'm this, I'm that, um, I'm a Jew. I've gotten a lot of really bad messages on social media, but in order to do a profile of, of any place you have to, it has to re be real. And so you have to see people, what it looks like. You know, I try to do it artistically and sometimes people's backs are turned. I'll do pictures where you can't really see their faces and sometimes you can see their faces, but you know, it's about like documenting an American phenomenon effectively. And that means that you're going to do it and you're going to photograph the people who are suffering with addiction. You're going to photograph the families in the neighborhood. You're going to photograph the neighborhood. You're going to photograph animals. I do all of it. And so um, a lot of people now just, it's easy enough for people to say you're being exploitative or you're being, um, oh, this is just gross and disgusting. And, but that's what it looks like. I mean, I did a whole series on Trank. I showed what it really looks like. What do Trank wounds look like? What do you, what do the EMS people see when they pick these people up? You know, I mean, you have major newspapers sending people in to do these stories and the pictures mostly suck or they just show no context. You have a photographer in there that's completely overwhelmed, afraid, doesn't know how to show, doesn't know how to talk to people to get, they just, they're just out of their element. They're just not, um, in order to do Kensington right, you have to be really committed to it and you have to be willing to take risks and, um, you have to be a little bit stupid sometimes. Well, speaking of Trank, that's a somewhat new drug compared to heroin and some of the other ones that we've seen for a few de decades now. You've got a unique lens, no pun intended, as far as you know some of the the more desperate areas that you've you've filmed. What have you seen timeline wise as far as the introduction of Trank and the uh, the impact it's having on a lot of these addicts that you're seeing? I haven't, I wasn't here for the introduction of Trank. Trank first started being seen, I think around, I don't know, maybe 2010. I'm not really sure. Okay. But it's now in the drug supply of fentanyl and, and fentanyl is actually spiking a lot of different things. It isn't just, you know, people wanting to get an opioid high. Okay. But Trank has destroyed these people. It has destroyed them. It is 
not only causing wounds, but it's also causing internal damage. I believe it's causing, and I'm a lay person, I'm not a physician, but I can see in these young people certain physical characteristics that they all seem to have. And I also have watched over a year now, it's been over a year that I've been here and I've watched people deteriorate, deteriorate. There's only one person has improved that I photographed. She got clean. I believe she got clean. I was told she got clean. Um, the rest of them are so bad. I can't photograph them. There is a few that got clean probably that I haven't seen. I don't know for sure. Some of them could have died. I've been, I stayed out of there for a long time and I've been going back. I'm doing different kinds of work now, kind of more still life, more scenes. Um, I'm getting ready to do um, another project probably um, out of possibly out of the country. I'm not sure, but um, every one of them has gotten catastrophically worse and they're all supported by harm reduction groups who are just making it easy for them to stay there. And it's 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 so awful that I can't photograph them anymore. The people that appear in my webs on my website that and I I have a, a publication with Stern coming out. They're finally going to publish it. All the people in those pictures have gotten so much worse since those pictures were done. They get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. They don't get better. They're so some of them are so bad now, I can't photograph them. I mean, I could, but I don't know what kind of meaning the picture would have because in a normal society where we were mature, the pictures would have meaning. You would see how they looked when I started and how they look now. And you would say, wow, this drug problem in this country is really a big fucking problem. And we need to really get a handle on it. We're giving billions of dollars to for wars for Ukraine and, and for Israel. But we need to take that money out of that military budget and put it towards our own country. Okay. And figure out what the fuck is going on with these drugs and get it taken care of and get these dealers off the street once and for all. Forget wokeism. Get them the hell off the street. Okay. And I am thinking that if we had a more mature society and a, and, a, and, a, and a better set of people working on publications in this country who actually were motivated and who were driven by the need to educate and show what's really going on instead of um, whatever bullshit political agendas they have and trying, you know, uh, elitist mentality, you'd want to see all the pictures. You'd want to see how does this person look now? But if I take that picture of how they look now, it's viewed as an exploitation. And it's also so bad because taking the picture falls on deaf ears here. Because all their humanity matters, you know, from where they started at when I photographed them initially to where they are now. I mean, I photographed a couple of people in their worst moments, like Bethany in New York City, she's transgender and I've been photographing her for years. But a lot of people, they don't wanna see what, what are the real results of drugs and mental illness and neglect and all these other things. People wind up in a very, very, very deteriorated state. And I think it's important to see that. Um, I don't know that it should be put on 
social media in, in their worst worst state, unless that person's okay with it. Um, a lot of my worst pictures I don't have on there. And believe it or not, some of my worst pictures have gone to people's parents who wanted them and who were grateful for them because they wanted to see what their kids are now. And they were so happy to have these pictures. Their kids sent them. Like they, I show them their pictures and we send them. I send them to their parents right, right on the street with them. And they're rough pictures. But you have um, a situation where we don't have an atmosphere that's conducive to seeing all that reality. You know, it's being hidden and it's, it's in Kensington. I feel like you just have to sort of uh, go for it all. Well, the thing about Trank that's so scary. And when you talk about the, the before and after shots, I think of the, the faces of meth, they call it. I think they were all mug yes. shots, but you know, yeah, it was, it was a great. side by side. But it is. It shows the absolute deterioration. You look at this and go, oh, my God, how horrific. You know, the skeletons, they got no teeth. I mean, it's it's awful. But the problem is a lot of the drugs that, that we run on out there don't, you know, devastate the human body and then kill someone quickly. Like, you know, cocaine is your septum starts deteriorating. You're going to have cardiac issues, you know, heroin, you know, depending on if you're eating, you're gonna, you may lose some weight, but ultimately... If you don't take too much, you're going to carry on breathing. You're not going to have some, you know, horrendous, grotesque um, health issues with it. Yes. Alcoholism, you can drink yourself to death, but it's going to take decades and decades. But meth before and then and then now, you know, trank. I mean, the devastating impact on the actual human body and especially trank, these open wounds. And I mean, it's it's so, so sad. And seeing something deteriorate a human being so rapidly needs to be front and center because this is these are our brothers and sisters these these were kids that once we were playing with in in, in a kindergarten somewhere and now we're working in the city and this person's living under a bridge rotting literally so i think that you know that we're pushing against something that i observed years ago which is you can watch an action film on old american cable television and rambo will slaughter you know a hundred viet cong but then a woman's nipple will be blurred out. You know, we, we've got such a, a That's bizarre exactly kind of right. That's exactly right. So we can look at pictures of flayed children on Instagram, but we can't show a nipple, right? And I can't show what it really looks like to have a trank wound on Instagram. If I show that, you know, I mean, these trank wounds are really, really bad. They're almost like war wounds. Some of them are so bad, you'd be shocked. They are like war wounds. They're unbelievably bad. I have something on my website that I'm not going to put on Instagram. You know, there are limits to what can go on Instagram, but I think that um, it's so important to show what people are going through, you know, in Kensington, you know, people are out in public doing this stuff. They're being filmed by YouTubers, and that's a real issue. I, I was just looking at some YouTube videos yesterday because I wanted to see if certain people were still alive because I can't find them. I've been driving. I can't find them. I don't want to walk on the street right now and, and ask around. I'm not. I've done this now for so long that I've, I'm just not, I hate to say this, I'm not interested in interacting right now. It's been so difficult um, 
I've been exposed to so much fentanyl, you know, a lot of fentanyl smoke, a lot of stuff um, on me, you know, um, I've been in some very dangerous situations and I, I've created a pretty extensive body of work there. And I, I don't know how much more I can add to it. And I don't feel the compulsion to do it in that way right now. Um, but I really want to know what's happened to some people. And the other issue for me is because of the time of year, it's cold. They're burning fires and I have asthma and the fires they burn are wood and plastic and detritus. And it's so noxious. I mean, you'll have people passed out around a fire that's got so much black smoke and I can't tolerate that. I'll get really sick. So in the winter, it's, it's really hard for me to hang out. Um, and in Philadelphia, in Kensington, you actually see bonfires on the street. It's unbelievable. It's like a neighborhood that the city just decided to just say, do whatever the fuck you want. We don't care. We don't care about the neighbors. We don't care about the kids that live in the neighborhood, that they're getting exposed to this awful smoke. These drug dealers build bonfires in these neighborhoods, burning plastic and, and car seats and all kinds of crap. Mm -hmm. And they're so out of it. Some of them, they're not understanding what they're doing to themselves but they're also doing it to the neighborhood and nobody does anything about it. They're allowed to do whatever they want. If you set a fire in my neighborhood, you get arrested. But I think it's really important to photograph all this stuff, but I'm doing it, you know, but in the meantime, I don't know what's happened to some of the people I photographed. So I went and I looked on YouTube, recent YouTube to see if I could find any of them, you know, cause I can't find them. I've been looking and looking and, I don't know if they're dead or they just moved on. There's just a few of them that I can't find. And um, I also found myself in a weird situation. You know, I was very uncomfortable in and I decided to pull away from it. I didn't, didn't like what I was seeing. A lot of the people that are out on the street there, they're not just victims of drug abuse, like of, of addiction. It's not... Like you can look at it and say they're victims, they've been abused, they're traumatized. Many of them are, but they're also victimizing each other. They're victimizing the neighborhood. There are businesses like dozens that have had to close because of theft. There are drug dealers out there, whatever they went through in their childhood and whatever social ills have whatever, they're still destroying the neighborhood. They're viciously abusing a lot of the people who are addicted. There is this very strong culture of abuse that runs through Kensington. And I've written about it and talked about it. And Philadelphia, the media here has completely abrogated their responsibilities. They don't talk about it. They don't try to find out what's going on. They're clueless. They don't know. They don't want to know. And they're terrified to tell the stories for their own politically correct motivations that I don't know, can't figure out what happened to journalism in the United States. But in Philly, there is no journalism. And so you have a neighborhood that's literally on fire. And um, Trank is a component of fentanyl. It's it's fentanyl and they, they mix Trank in there. To, to extend it and to get people really fucked up and, you know, whatever. 
they want to get them high really quickly. They don't want it to last too long and they, they want them to be able to afford it and they want to make money off of them. But a lot of these people I found that I photographed were doing really bad things. So I've told stories of theirs that I thought were important and that needed to be heard. But there's also another side to the story about what a lot of them have done to each other, to family members, tried to do to me, done to other photographers. There's a lot of things I can't talk about. But when I'm doing, I, I've done a lot of pictures of people and you have to believe in them in some respects. You want to illuminate the problem, but um, right now I'm illuminating a neighborhood. I'm still sort of doing it. But I found that um, there's a lot of reasons why people are on the street and there's a lot of criminal activity going on. They get victimized and they get treated very poorly and very abused. They're very abused, a lot of them. But there's a lot of things that they do to their family and friends. And it's not just a group of people who should be coddled and pitied. There's people taking advantage. There's people lying. There's people setting other people up. There's people doing, it's very, very, it's, it's a very difficult not to un, to unravel. I'm always curious about solutions, especially from people who have traveled. Like for example, I went to Portugal. I mean, my family moved to Portugal a long time ago and I sat with the man who spearheaded decriminalization of addiction in Portugal right. doesn't mean you can go in okay. the shops and buy it. You know, just the addicts are brought in, they're educated on resources. They put a huge amount of money into mental health counseling, um, addiction counseling, job creation. Yes. Um, and to me, that's one of the problems that we have with the addiction crisis here is that to feed your addiction in America, you've got to go to the underworld because we've stigmatized yes. addiction. With you traveling around the world, are there any other kind of things that you've seen somewhere else that works well, or the, or at least other perspectives on this issue that you yourself are seeing through the the lens of your camera that you think you know if if we tried a different um, philosophy in this country, maybe we could make a dent at the the nucleus of addiction, not shuffling them off to another jurisdiction so that that neighborhood can forget about it, but actually addressing the root cause of why so many people are on the streets and therefore as you just described that kind of moral spiral downwards as addiction so often pulls people through after seeing what i've seen um i have a really conservative outlook on what i think like there's a lot of far left i never understood what far left meant and moderate conservatives and conservative and i I am not a far left person. I do not believe that. I think the far left has got control of Kensington in a lot of ways. I believe that harm reduction is a science and it's a medical, it's a medical um, protocol. It's, and that's important, but harm reduction in Kensington and harm reduction on the street 
a lot of times is getting people, you know, rehab, they can help get them rehab. They give them needles, they give them clean paraphernalia to use, crack pipes, meth pipes, chapstick, anything you need to keep you comfortable while you're getting high, except the drug itself, clothes, food, uh, wound care. Harm reduction is harming a lot of people, okay? In my opinion. I think that the only way to get this in hand in Kensington and generally is to provide clean needles because you, you need to do that, provide wound care, get them into hospitals if they're willing to go, get them into rehab, and that's it. No food, no clothes, no place to go to take a shower, no place to go to get your hair cut, mobile haircut, no donations, because they come to Kensington knowing they can get high for $5 bags. They come to Kensington knowing they can boost, which is shoplifting in the neighborhood. They come to Kensington knowing harm reduction is there, will provide them with food, with clothes, with uh, everything they need to get high. They can go in and get a shower. A lot of these harm reductions play favorites. There's some of, some of the harm reductions play favorites. There's one in particular, which I won't name, which gave me a really hard time. They were really, really awful. And they play fit. I hear horrible things about some of them from people on the street who can't stand them, but they need them. They need the needles. They need the clothes. They need to use the bathroom, but there's all kinds of issues with harm reduction. There's all kinds of weird situations that can grow up with people in harm reduction who themselves are really in need of, of therapy. Some of them. Um, but if you didn't have any of these things, you wouldn't have kids from the suburbs taking an Uber to get to Kensington to go on a bender and die on the street. If there was nothing there, man, nothing there, but the basic thing, we're going to take care of your trank wound. We're going to send you to the hospital. We're going to give you needles because we don't want to risk needle-borne illnesses. We will do the bare minimum, but there is no soup here. There is no crackers. There are no muffins. There's no clean clothes. There's no uh, church group coming on Saturday to, to give a beautiful meal and a sermon. Nothing. You're going to have a whole lot of people rethink whether or not they're going to go on a bender in Kensington because they go on a bender and they never go home. I talk to many, many people who have a home who are on the street in Kensington and they used to go on the weekends and then they were there a few days a week and then they're there five days a week and then and, 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 and now they're living there because their family won't take them back because they're a mess. They're dirty. They've got a wound. They're stealing the TV, right? So when I first got there, I was volunteering with harm reduction. And then they began to realize that I was photographing realistically and they rejected me. They were like, oh, we, they started to get mean and weird. And I was like, fuck you. I don't want to deal with these people because they're almost like a cult. Because for some of the harm reduction people, it's their thing. You know, like you raise puppies or you, you save animals Every Saturday, they have a place to go. They they have a habit of giving out all this food. They go, and there's some really good people involved. They really, really want to help, but they're misguided because they're keeping these people there. You have to do everything in your power to tell them this is a shit life. This neighborhood sucks. There's nothing good to eat here. You're going to get your ass kicked. People should not be allowed to inject on the street. They should not be 
allowed to burn fires on the street. The drug dealers should not be allowed to terrorize a corner. They should not be allowed to terrorize me if I get out of my car. I have to ask permission. They should not be allowed to stand there with guns. There needs to be real policing, effective policing, effective city leadership in all cities in the United States where we have this problem. But harm reduction as practiced on the streets is the biggest problem. And people need to sit down together and get a plan and tell these church groups, everybody, don't come down here. Let them suffer and they will go into rehab or they will die. But they're, but if they're not going to go into rehab, they're not going to do it anyway. You're prolonging the agony and you're destroying the neighborhood by enabling this behavior. And that is a hard statement to make because a lot of people disagree with it. And I will get totally, a lot of addicts actually agree with me. They've said, for my Stern piece, the interviewer, they've said to him, they're enabling us to be here. Well, I think, the, as you've described as well, you know, for that moment, you're making it more comfortable, but you're not getting to the root cause. You're not addressing the addiction. No. You're not addressing the mental health. You know, again, not, not all of them. A lot of them are going to have trauma. And if not initially, then certainly after years of being an addict, um, you know, you're not going to have the the path that leads to a roof over your head and a job and all the tools that a functioning member of a of a community needs. So, and I've said this, you know, I mean, I've, I've had people kind of push back on the, on the, uh, you know, the prohibition conversation. They're like, oh, they tried it in, you know, wherever Seattle, I'm like, no, they didn't, they legalized marijuana. That's not, you know, removing drug prohibition for an addict. Now I'm not talking about smugglers and sellers. Those get the full fucking force of the law in right. Portugal, for example, but the addict who's just simply doing whatever it is to get their next hit. That's the, the one where you're not going to get all of them, but a large portion, if you tell them, look, you're not going to get arrested and we have got these resources and this is what we didn't do in America. We didn't take the money from the war on drugs and put it into proactive solutions. We just changed laws and, and put almost nothing to support it. So I understand where you're coming from because it is a form of enabling when we're not doing anything to address the root cause. You know, if we, it's the same as modern medicine at the moment, chronic disease medicine in America like you've got hypertension. All right, here's a bunch of pills. I haven't told you to change the way you eat. I haven't told you to exercise. Right, that's exactly And I told right. you you're going to be on those those statins for the rest of your life or you know whatever drug you're on. There's a lot of old people who are on cholesterol-lowering medication, blood pressure-lowering medication. They're eating the worst food. But my cholesterol is 110. I'm like, no. You could still give yourself colorectal cancer. You could still give yourself all kinds of other illnesses from eating this crap. Just because your cholesterol is low doesn't mean that the whole pro that's the whole problem. You have people that I get what you're saying, but you know, it's very hard. They, a lot of parents, you know, down there, there's people down there that are in such rough shape. They can't get a job and they can't boost because they can't go into a store. Nobody will let them go in. I mean, they're like covered in pus. There are people covered in pus from their trank wounds. I have photos of, of a couple people. Um, that's the reality. It is not uncommon for them to be covered in pus. How are they gonna get money for drugs? How? They have Cash App. 
they might have to borrow somebody's phone and they, they text or call their parents and their parents throw $15 into cash app or $20. And that's how they get high. And I've made phone calls to people's parents. Can I use your phone? I always let them use my phone. And the parent sounds really devastated or really tired or really fed up. And like, why are you calling me? I don't want to give you money for this. Sometimes they won't answer. Called many parents, half don't answer. Okay. And then, you know, they'll have to use somebody's phone for the cash app. So they'll use, you know, one guy used a drug dealer's phone. A drug dealer was right there. And so the mother sent the drug dealer $15 for her son, but the drug dealer kept five for himself and gave the son $10 to get high. Um, there's another racket. People don't know they're enabling this, but young women will call their family and tell them, that they're being beaten, like they'll be with guys, they'll FaceTime them and a guy will be beating them supposedly and they will extort money from a family member. The guy will say, give me 200 or $300 or I'm going to beat the shit out of your daughter right now. And they extort money. I know people that that's happened to and I've listened to parents tell me that it happened. And they didn't know that it's a scam, that other people have done it. And it's a thing. You know what I mean? You can't tell a parent, well, that that's a scam. You know what I mean? That's They get one or two guys and they're all in on it and they all get the money and they all go get tons of drugs. So there's different ways that people are enabled. You know, I, when my son was really involved in drugs, he's not anymore. He's been clean for a year. But I gave him $20 a day. He told me it was for food. Sometimes it was 15. I knew it was drugs, but I had to give him money for food. He was not, he was living in a, uh, a special home for youth who had problems. I threw him out because he was really, 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 really abusive and stealing. But I enabled it. He was using a lot of that money for drugs. You know, it's really hard when you know your kid is thin or they don't have any money. Even if your kid is a real, real shithead, it's really hard to walk away from your kid, to have your kid call and say, mom, I'm really dope sick. You know, they're calling their mom in front of me. I'm dope sick. Mom, please. I don't want to do a date. I had a girl do this. Mom, please. If you don't give me money, I'm going to have to do a date. A date is, um, prostitution. And, and in Kensington, it's walking up and down the street, looking not real great and having some loser pick you up. I'm sorry. Some of these girls are in horrible condition and these guys pick them up. And it's, it's God knows what, what they're real, what's going on there, you know? And, um, there are some girls that are very attractive, but that's uncommon. You know, a lot of them are not in good shape. And I photographed a good handful of them who have really deteriorated. You know, so the daughter will say, mom, I don't want to do a date. Mom, you know what happened? My friend, this guy beat her in the head and then they raped her. Mom, I don't want to do a date. I don't want to do a date. I don't want to get raped. And they don't, but they're pulling this on their mom 
And their mom's saying, no, I can't give you money. You're going to use it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then they wear them down and I'm standing there holding the phone. They wear them down and they're like, all right, I'll give you $30. And they send it to cash app. The, the call closes off and the girl literally walks away from me. Doesn't say thank you. Nothing. Just like it never happened. She just goes off to, to retrieve the, the money. Obviously, you know, that's the absolute desperation that's going on. As far as hope, though, have there been any people that you met during their addiction, during their homelessness that managed to find their way out? That would be, a, I guess, a quote unquote success story. I have not met anyone. I have heard of someone who got clean, supposedly Lily with the dark hair. I photographed her a couple times. I heard that she got clean. And then somebody said that she came back out on the street and OD'd five times in a row. And then I haven't seen her. I think she probably came back, OD'd a bunch of times, and then got off the street again. I have not seen her. Otherwise, I'm sure somebody's gotten clean. Um, but of the people that I've photographed, there's only one story. And that is the very first people I photographed in 2018. I came to Kensington. I never really went into Kensington, but I went into the outskirts, kind of where Fishtown and Aramingo Avenue before it gets into Kensington, like it's kind of like an out of the way area. And a lot of people panhandle on the highway. What are you doing? Um, a lot of people panhandle on the highway. And I found this amazing couple, um, Katie and I don't, Mike. And the, she was really cute, a really cute, thin girl. And they were addicted and they were very young. And I photographed them. And then I I lost touch with them. We, we called a few times and I lost touch. I came to Kensington five years, four years later to do these pictures. And this girl pulled up in a car. I didn't recognize her. Some plump woman, young woman said, hey, I'm Katie. And I'm like, who the fuck are you? What the fuck <laughs> this woman is? She was so different. Her and Mike got clean and they have an apartment in Kensington. Beautiful. They're living in Kensington because it's all they can afford. It's what they can do. But they're both clean. They stayed clean and they look so different. Completely different. That's the only thing I can think of. That was before Trank. They got clean before Trank. So now... I think it's so much more difficult for people to get clean. And when you're loaded with trank wounds, you're less motivated because it's just also terribly negative. You know, you have this wound that may or may not be infected. You have all kinds of health considerations from the wound. I think it's terribly defeating. It's yet another aspect of addiction that has to be managed and it can be very overwhelming. And I think having trank wounds makes it, you would think it would make it more likely that they would get clean, that they'd be like, I got to get clean. I got to get rid of this. No, I think it makes it less likely because it's just so ugly and so debilitating and they'll just let it go until they're, they're amputated. I saw a guy shooting into his amputation. I have photographs of people shooting into their wounds. Um, so my dog is okay. So, um, he's a really dumb little two-year-old Morky. I love him, but he's not very smart. <laughs> he does. Stupid yeah. My dog. Um, 
but I think that the trank wounds actually in a weird way make it less likely that people are going to get clean. Well, I can see. I mean, the people are riddled usually, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, with guilt and shame. You know, that's a that's a big part of addiction. And then you have this physical manifestation that you're now even more ashamed of. So yeah, I could see how that would be a vicious circle. That and also they're so the wounds are so hard to manage. It's so defeating and so depressing that I think people need all of the encouragement in the world to get clean if their body's in perfect shape. But if your body is falling apart, it is so much harder to be as positive and mentally focused as you need to be to get clean and get off the streets. So those trank wounds are like anchors. Yeah, I'm sure they hurt too. So that probably draws you to more pain medication. Yeah. Um, you'd be surprised how much they do with these wounds. Like they hurt, but they're high a lot, I guess. But I don't know what's going on. I, I mean, these open wounds, I'm talking about massive wounds that are like all, all up and down a leg, two legs. Horrendous. It is. It's so bad. I've seen wounds that were so bad that that, I mean, it's clear down to the bone, maggots, um, viscera, tendons, ligaments, fat, muscle striation, you know, the strata of the skin and the fat. And, and I think when you reach that point, it's just real easy to say, you know, this is over. Yeah. And they create a mess. So, I think that also creates issues for caregivers. Like if they show up at rehab, some of the rehabs here aren't very nice. They're not very nice people unless you have a lot of money to get into a good one. And so you have staff that are insensitive. And that's a problem for some of these places. You have staff that are insensitive. And some people say the rehabs are what you make them. You have to be highly motivated. Um, but you could go in there with trank wounds and, People don't want to go near you. They're not just going to be nice to you because you're in rehab. you got people, they view it as a job. They're not there because they're psychiatric social workers. They're there because they're just working there. And they don't have the sensitivity or the empathy. Um, and that's a real issue for some of the rehabs. So you could have a situation where somebody just doesn't want to bother with dealing with all that trauma yeah. Well, you get compassion fatigue. I see it in our community too. You know, if, if you've got someone working in that facility, this bright eyed and bushy tailed at the beginning. And as you said, you know, these desperate cases of people that you maybe early in your career are hoping you're going to be the one that's going to help them turn the corner. And then they come again and again and again, and they're getting worse and worse and worse. I can see how, you know, there would be an emotional fatigue on, on the workers in the rehab too. Yeah. Well, I'm not talking about the people who work in the rehab who are necessarily nurses and doctors and therapists. I'm talking about the workers in the rehabs that aren't necessarily um, skilled nurses or therapists. Some of them aren't very nice. They're really rough. And some of the social workers aren't very good. They don't really, they're just there. They get a paycheck. It takes a lot of work to be a social worker, to unearth a lot of programs for people to make sure that they understand everything. And, not all of them see their job take their job as seriously as they need to take it. There's a lot of um, social services who are staffed by people who don't care.
they really don't care. And that's another thing that's never talked about. Yeah, and it's a the vicious circle there too, because the chances of someone overcoming an addiction if they have a negative experience is is, is diminished. Same right. as a lot of the firefighters and police officers and uh, that I've had on the show that have gone to see a counselor and it was the wrong counselor and they've burst right. into tears or they told them to get out, they can't help them. That one interaction can be devastating to someone in crisis. Yes, it can be. I'll tell you, like doing this work has really catapulted me and like, well, it's spiraled in, into some real depression for me. And I've had some really traumatic experiences out there with some people trying to rob me or set me up or bad experiences with harm reduction, almost like creating a situation where I got beaten up. Um, I've witnessed beatings. I've witnessed people like dying, you know, and stuff. And um, it's been very traumatic for me. And the kinds of pictures I take, um, while they are narrative, some of them are real nice narratives. They're, you know, they have a flow and a, I try to do it artistically. There's still pictures that the first responders would be used to seeing. My pictures wouldn't freak the first responders out because that's what they see. But the regular people that look at them, they're like, oh my God, oh, get that away. You know, because first responders, you know, they see a part of people and humanity that other people don't see. They see the worst of us sometimes. They see the best of us too, but they see like these devastating situations that are really hard to talk about um, with other people because people like, especially these days, they don't want to be brought down. They don't want, they don't want a downer. You know, you go to a party or you go to a dinner and you had like some unbelievable experience on the street as a first responder or me as a photographer, I'm not a first responder. I'm not responsible to save people's lives, but I am seeing this right up close personal. And I have done things to actually really help people. And I've had to feed people and I've had to save people and get them help. And I've had to do a lot of things that people don't know about behind the pictures. Okay. And, um, so you have these experiences that other people find really distasteful. You've seen things that other people are grossed out by. You can't talk about it. Well, this guy was had this massive wound and you know, he's pimping his girlfriend and his girlfriend OD'd and like there's all these crazy fucked up stories and and it's hard to talk about it with regular civilian type people because a lot of people there are some people that have a lot of empathy and you can talk to, but a lot of them, they don't want to hear it. And then you just turn into this person that, you know, you know, you're a downer or you, you're, um, oh, you know, stop being so negative. Come on, be positive. But you're seeing a part of life in a neighborhood where everything seems to be futile. And, I had this editor say to me at the New York Times, this woman I did not get along with, this conversation did not go well. And I said to her, you know, life in the United States needs to be portrayed as realistically as what you portray in Ukraine. And you need to use that protocol and the same standard instead of omitting and deleting all this stuff from the narrative. And she said, you know, you know, she thought the work was very powerful and very, really good, but well, you know, don't you, can't you just go get some more hopeful images and put them in here and have like hope 
because, you know, we have to think about how the viewer is going to feel. The viewer is going to be, you know, upset and traumatized. And we have to think about that. And I wrote to her later and I said, I can't insert false pictures of hope because the story is the hopelessness of the whole situation. Yeah. And the fact that it's a dead end. And that's the story you need to tell. You can't go in there. And, and I have hopeful pictures of the neighborhood of kids. And I have all kinds of pictures that, you know, I I can make a nice edit with. But you have a population of people, you know, if you've been exposed to this kind of hardship and trauma that simply doesn't want to hear it. And they'll listen to it to a point and then it's time to get over it. But you can't just get over it. I, I can't imagine being an EMT. I can't imagine responding to these calls every day. You would just develop this out. Like, I don't know how. It would be well, really I mean, but but this is this is what needs to be heard. And this is why I love these conversations. I mean, the 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 guests and the subjects, each interview that I do is so diverse and some are laughy jokey and some are raw like this but this also needs to be heard and the people listening to this a lot of us are running on these people and i agree with you completely it's sad to me that there isn't really a voice for the fire service for ems in america you can name umpteen sports people that have you know a limelight or actors or singers but the voice of the the first responder i think it's a tragedy that it's not heard because we get to see society how it how it really is and like you said it's not all doom and gloom there's a lot of greatness you know arguably a majority of the people are doing pretty well so that's why we need to advocate for the ones who aren't and it's by this kind of storytelling that i think that we we kind of pull those eyelids open a little bit now for people listening where are the best places for people to to see your work you know the website and and uh, social media it's Suzanne Stein. You, if you Google me, Suzanne Stein photographer, I'm on Instagram. I have a blog. There's some stuff written up about me, but you can find my website and my Instagram. And, you know, um, I'll send you those links and you can put them in there and people can find them. Um, most of the rougher stuff is on my website. It's really weird. I do this really crazy rough kind of photography, but I have this really cute little dog and I follow all these animals on Instagram and I have all these stuffed animals. And, you know, I have this other part of me that's like really, <laughs> you know, kind of, um, this is my dog. <laughs> Beautiful. He's silly. You can see it. <laughs> um, kind of to offset all this trauma, but yeah, yeah. I'll give you those links and but I think there needs to be more of a dialogue with first responders. And I think people really need, we all really rely on first responders. They're the most important people in our lives, really, when something's wrong. But we we really need to hear more, not just like some cops show, you know. I mean, somehow it would be great to get that dialogue simultaneously. It would be interesting with photography, too, because um, they see life as it as it really is they see us how we are absolutely yeah. oh yeah that would be a beautiful fusion actually it really would i mean not not beautiful maybe aesthetically but you know no powerful. But it's very important and you know i'll tell you and i'll leave you with this in examining a lot of photo, photo, photographs that are in media publications i've been doing a lot of that lately because i thought i wanted to break into doing that kind of photography but i can't because my style is just i look at it and it's very polished 
and they can go to a place where it sucks and take these really polished pictures. And that's not what it looks like. And so first responders see what it really looks like, but you can't see that anywhere else. They see something that is not represented in media. It's not represented. It's hard to talk about. People don't really aren't always receptive. So there really would be very interesting to have that fusion and really get it out there because that's the lives that we're all really living, but we're acting like it's not really real life. It's sort of like that, that, Photographic euphemism is what's really out there. Absolutely. And it's like a, you know, it's like a mist, it's like a hand clapping that are not connecting, you know, what's really out there and then what, what we're supposed to see, if that makes sense. It does. Well, we'll have to talk about that because I mean, that, that, you know, maybe some, some narration from a first responder couple with, you know, some of your pictures might be an interesting collaboration so yeah, it really would be i agree it would be um those are the people that would understand my pictures <laughs> you know yeah, absolutely well i want to thank you so much um it's been an amazing conversation um you know i, I want to thank you as well for for what you've done because as you said a lot of us see it but it's you know we stand at parties and people don't know <laughs> you know what we see in the desperation and you see you know, people on television saying, oh, this community is this way or the problem with the homeless is this. And and you're like, no, you, no, you know, we have a very, very different lens. And I feel like your photography, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we connected in the first place, really does line up with a lot of what a lot of us see. And it's an important conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me.